0: welcome back everyone this is the product show with Colin Pell your host and today is episode 16 if you are new here this is the one minute rundown of the product uncensored show i write on www.productuncensored.com videos are on youtube Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, Audio or podcast, we're available on all major podcasting platforms. And something new for all our listeners, viewers, readers this week is that um, I've been getting questions about how people can support the show. um, And I've decided to sign up for a Buy Me A Coffee account. So you can now support the show for the cost of a coffee. And if you have supported me, thank you very much. If not, don't worry about it. Just keep listening, keep watching, giving me feedback. That will be more than enough. Okay, all that is out of the way. I want to get straight into episode 16. And today we have a very special guest. I say that for every single guest because I truly believe that all our guests are special. Um, This this guest today, she's a product leader. She's an author. She's just signed a book. We're going to go into, well, she didn't just sign it, but well, we're going to get into that later on. Um, she's now living in the city nation of Singapore. And her latest update is that she's now teaching at the Northeastern University, the Amor McKim School of Business. That is an incredible mouthful. Um, but yes, that's where she's teaching. And we'll probably talk a little bit about that. So everyone, put your hands up in the air and say hello to Radhika Dutt. Welcome to the show, Radhika.
1: Thank you, Nicole, and it's great to be here.
0: Yes, it is fantastic. I was just telling Radhika just before we started recording, she looked a bit different. And that's mainly because I was watching some of the the older videos and she had shorter hair. Um, And she made a good point, right? Because lockdown, not many people have gone to to get their hair done in that sense. Um, How are things in Singapore, Radhika?
1: they're actually really good things pretty much feel back to normal Um, and you know thinking about product like it amazes me how Singapore has dealt with COVID Uh, I say that because like they continuously give people updates in terms of what's the community spread um, all these different stats etc so right now it's at about you know one to two people per day who uh, are testing positive so it's not too bad
0: okay fantastic fantastic Um, yeah and uh, just just to let you know you know it, it hurts me when you say you know Singapore's doing really well because I'm Malaysian so for those of you who don't know right you guys are doing so well too <laughs> sorry
1: my, my comparison right now is with the US
0: <laughs> yeah so listen just to give you a bit more nuance into Asia right so Singapore and Malaysia used to be one country that we split so this was like a bad breakup you know so every other time we throw stones at each other across the causeway so that's just a little so bit not <laughs> <laughs> all right, Radhika, let let's start with um we're, we're going to go pull this all the way from the start into MIT. Let's start there, right? Cuz you studied in MIT and obviously see look at this cap. This is a this is a tribute to Boston. So um and, I see that. Thank you. <laughs> and and the, the question I was going to start off with, right? How did you get into MIT and why did you decide to study what you did? Because let me caveat the question by saying MIT is not for everyone. It's it's hard to get in there. It's only smart people get in there. So I have to assume that you have to be very smart. <laughs>
1: You know, it's fascinating you say that because I think there's such a sense of imposter syndrome, right? I think when I went into MIT first, um, for a long time, I kind of wondered if I really belonged there. Um, And, you know, my background was that I was in South Africa. Um, I was the first non-white in my class. Um, I had to really kind of prove myself. Um, You know, I I was part of that class in South Africa where we were the only ones to whom they taught calculus. Like it was all these struggles that I wrote about in my MIT, oh, that I didn't even actually write about in my MIT essay. Um, And and so now looking back, there was something that they saw in there that I didn't really even realize that I didn't really even talk about my struggles. And part of it was because of that imposter syndrome. Um, So how did I get in there? I do feel like, you know, part of it is, yes, you're good, right? Um, But there's also an element of um of of honestly luck because there are so many deserving Mm. people um who are also smart um and so yeah i think my my realization after coming out of mit is that those who are smart are humble and realize that um you're not there only because you're so good right you're there because you had a privilege and i'm really honored that i and grateful that i had that privilege
0: Okay. And why why did you choose electrical engineering? That was your degree, right? Electrical engineering.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've always felt like I've wanted to be an engineer, but in in hindsight, right, was it my wanting to be an engineer, wanting to build things? Um, It's kind of an unknown. So look, I'm glad I studied electrical engineering, but I will say that I, I'm not the engineer who's passionate about it. I look at my husband. His, he, uh, we met at MIT. You know, He uh, studied software. His hobby is software. When we live um, in Boston, you know, he has a whole server farm in the basement. I mean, that's his passion. <laughs> for me, electrical engineering just wasn't doing it for me. Uh, and so the first startup that I had after, after school, you know, it led me into more of the business path. And that's where I realized my passion was.
0: Okay, okay, very nice. and uh talking about um business, um, you didn't take any um uh, a master's in business or, or things like that. You actually did your master's in electrical engineering and computer science um as well so again, that's very interesting for someone who didn't really know whether you know electrical engineering was you know the path. you actually went one step further as well.
1: <laughs> it's true, I think you know part of it was um when we were at MIT. When um, you know, okay. So MIT also has the Sloan School. At the time, um, at the time when we were in uh, when we were studying engineering, you know, we all we felt like that was the true calling. That you know, coming from Sloan School, it was almost like a derogatory if we said you were a Sloanie. (laughs) And so. And so, you know, there was this thing where um, the Sloan people, you know, it was all about networking and talking and things like that. It wasn't about doing. And so um, it became this thing where I wonder, you know, in hindsight, if it was because of that feeling that mm. I was like, no, 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 I'm not doing business school. Um, and, and because engineering felt authentic, right? Yeah. Um, and so part of that is I've carried that forward where I feel like we can be in business and we can be authentic. <laughs> um, and I think at the time, I just didn't pursue going into business school because it didn't feel authentic from, you know, my brief experience.
0: Mm. your your um your train of thought would be very similar to probably like i don't know 80 percent of asian parents you know where they tell you that oh you want to be you want to do business no business is not very good but if you want to do you want to be a doctor you want to be an engineer now that is good because it's technical and if i pay for your education now that's a good course to take so yeah, actually, if you if you watch back some of the other um, guests that I've had on the show, especially those who were in the Southeast Asian region, and oh, oh, Vincent is the the exception, in, from the Hong Kong, but he had the same problem as well, right? You trying to justify to your parents why you were doing this thing, either called computer science or business, but well, basically anything that's not the traditional. <laughs> Field of, of of schooling, they'd be like, oh, "Are you sure?" You know, this is not this is not a good use of my money. So
1: <laughs> That's funny. Like my parents actually were encouraging it. I was the one saying, "You know, not for me." Um, and you know, it's so true what you say about the Asian thing, though. But um, because my daughter went to a summer camp in Hong Kong, and one of her classmates said, well, um, was explaining why he was doing that uh, that course, and he said, "As my mother says, doctor, engineer, or disappointment." <laughs> (laughs)
0: oh okay okay wow savage very savage yeah okay one one last joke about kids since you brought it up Um, i'll tell you this one joke about about my kids so um my younger son he's four and you know we've been in lockdown we were we were in lockdown in malaysia as well so pretty much couldn't do anything staying home and we used to watch these um press conferences um by the prime minister um, and also because of that, we were ordering a lot of food because, I mean, we started off by cooking every meal, but realized you we were just going to die trying. So we tried to um, have one meal that we would order through uh, delivery and one we cooked and we always use grab. And so one day my son, we we're talking to, to him and he says, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a government. Because he kept watching these press conferences looking at a prime minister. And what, what was option number two? He wants to be a grab driver. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, that's, uh, enough about that. We are very off track. But let, let, let's go and talk about the startup. Um, you said when you came out of school, right? So, were you bitten by that startup bug when you graduated? Was it because of that? Um, what, what, yeah, what was the motivation behind the startup?
1: Yeah, it was actually bitten by the startup bug uh, before graduating. So we used to get together, you know, in a group and we used to talk about, you know, what ideas can we put together? Like, and this was back in 1999 and I was actually still in school at the time. Um, and so that's when we started discussing uh, ideas. And we actually started that company Lobby 7 while I was still working on my master's thesis and so on. Um, yeah. It was it was an exciting time to start a company, right? With the, the economy really on an upswing.
0: Yep. And that was like ninety-nine, that would still be the dot com boom, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. In okay. fact, we started <laughs> we started the company, got funding, and then the market went. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. And 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 you know, um over the course of your career as well, you started like what, two or three? Was it two or three? Um, two companies. Two companies, right. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about startups um, as well. Because um, in, in your talks about you know, radical product thinking, and by the way, you know, we're going to go deep dive into radical product thinking a little later. Um, you talk about how um, there is a problem with the way that we build stuff, right? The way that product is developed and how things work. And one of the things that I've always been very curious about, but I, I never grew up in, 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 in the States or, or stayed there any longer for a month. So that's, that's my, the longest I've been there. And I'm always curious to know the startup scene right? seems to have, uh, well, well, since you like to talk about diseases, it has a disease um, where it's all about getting funding and growth at all costs how How prevalent is that um today and how was it like when you were doing startups i mean i mean in the case of your first startup
1: yeah it's it's interesting right it it is so prevalent today and it was just as prevalent when I was starting a company, and in fact, you know we very much had the same attitude uh, when we were starting out, and you know we were just kids starting out, and uh, you can see why one would have that attitude right that's this growth at all costs, and uh, becoming big is really what gets a lot of media attention, uh, and so everyone feels like that's what we really need to strive for um, and so um, yeah, nothing it feels like it's really changed but you know what you talk about in terms of these product diseases it's it's so prevalent because of this growth at all costs Um, what i've realized over time right is that um, we tend to iterate and just overuse iteration to be able to move kpi up into the right it's about that growth being able to show those financial kpis Um, and in the process of that we end up making a lot of uh, short-term decisions. It's a lot of short-term thinking. Um, That isn't necessarily how we build successful products. Um, And so this pattern of mistakes is what I started calling product diseases. Um, But unfortunately, there's... You know, more recently, in the last maybe ten years, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that there's a there's a side effect to this growth at all costs, um, and that's what I've started calling digital pollution. That we're really fraying the fabric of society by pursuing just these financial KPI at all costs.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. Um, I was actually recently speaking to one uh, startup founder, We've got funding, you know, and and with. And he was saying, you know, okay, right now, you know, we really want to scale our team and blah, blah, blah. So that's all fantastic. So I was just very curious to ask him, so what is your like um, North Star metric, so to speak, right? What is that one thing? I was like, oh, it's just active users. I was like, oh, okay. And like, what about, you know, things like um, getting profitable? No, nope, that's not important right now. All I want is just active users and growth. Okay. So it it, it sort of came real because... I always hear it, but th- that was my first time where I've heard a founder say, like, flat out, like, I really don't care about anything else except growth." I was like, wow, that is, that is insane. So, hmm. okay. Yeah. So, it doesn't, we, yeah, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I, I think there's, uh, you know, so if you heard uh, Masayoshi-san talk about uh, their investment strategy, right, um, they said, well, win it, winner takes all. And so... That's why they look to who's winning and then they just put a massive amount of money in there and kind of this idea that winner takes all is what we're seeing because you have the big tech players and they basically gobble up all of the interesting smaller players who come along Um, and so everyone has this motivation that unless you are that um, that leading player, you, you can't really have a good exit strategy. And so mm. that's why this attitude that, oh, you know, it's this financial KPI at all costs. Um, and, and, you know, to give that example, you, you talked about that startup. I was talking to one startup. Um, I was talking to a founder, his app actually went viral. And so then I said, well, this sounds really interesting. What's your vision for the world? And they build chatbots, right? Chatbots with personality. Um, And so uh, he goes, well, my vision is that we have, you know, at the end state, um, all these chatbots who are friends with you, chatbots are friends with each other. I was like, okay. that." Brings up like some issues around privacy. You know, what if like yeah. your HR chatbot is talking to your mental health chatbot? Um, and so he goes, "Well, you know, that's not an issue right now. You know, once we become big, then just like Facebook, we'll deal with it using AI." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, that's going really well for Facebook, isn't it?" And he takes it a step further. He says, "Well, anything that would slow down growth right now for us would be unacceptable."
0: Mm.
1: And that's where you know I feel like. Oh. Yes, you should
0: Sorry, be he, building. Yeah, can you repeat that for all? I think your mic just dropped off for like two seconds.
1: Oh, can you hear me okay now?
0: Yes, now you're fine. Just that two seconds here. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so uh, he was saying basically um, that, yeah, anything that, uh, that slows, slows growth. down growth is not acceptable. But this is the thing about entrepreneurship, that when we build products, we affect people. And so, you know, my approach is that we should be able to build successful products, but it comes with the responsibility that with great power comes great responsibility that yeah. we also need to think about our effect on, on society.
0: Mm, i totally agree and that's i think one of the conversations that's becoming more prevalent um, especially in in the circles i operate in um, at least within the southeast asian region about you know ethical product management it's it's a tough conversation especially when many of the countries in southeast asia are still developing in that sense so even simple things like civic consciousness it's is not really that um widespread in that sense so to speak it's not like you know top of mind kind of thing. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think that's the conversation that also needs to happen, you know, in very uh, developed countries like the US where, you know, the, the thought of, you know, just being the next big thing has just totally eclipsed all sort of sense and sensibility in that sense. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Like that's, that's really interesting. So yeah, that, one of the things I wanted to just understand was, you know, whether, whether things have changed since you started doing startup out of school. Um the other part that I wanted to get your thoughts, experience about is also in your um career, you've worked in you know startups that you founded and also really, really big companies like Cisco, for example, is a huge ass company, right? And how how do you find the practices differ between you know startup and you know big humongous companies?
1: Um, I think I can, you'll probably find, uh, you know, my personal bias very easily in my resume, (laughs) the fact that, you know, I I love the smaller companies where you have more autonomy. Uh, Mm. The larger these companies go, I think the more you spend uh, time talking and uh, it's harder to get things done and so as an entrepreneur I find it really hard to work in really large companies um, but I think you know funny enough I say that and yet now I'm starting to work with um, the government here um, I think part of it is um, is the desire for change right and mm. Um, mm. whether whether there's enough like momentum for wanting to do something different um, and I I think that's really what I see: the autonomy and and momentum. There are some places that even when they're big, they still carry that momentum, um, and and there's this desire that we want to create change. And mm. when that happens, that still makes those places fun and feel uh, more dynamic.
0: Yeah, but uh, I mean, I totally uh, agree with that. So, what would you say would be the biggest obstacles, or or rather, the challenges to to overcome when you join? a a huge company yeah
1: yeah so i think it's a lot of consensus building right and Mm. i think as a product manager what i've realized is when we start asking someone what drives you like what makes work feel meaning for you uh, meaningful for you so some people answer the question saying solving hard problems Other people say, oh, you know, developing people and teams and things like that. Um, And then there's a third category of people saying, you know, when I actually see stuff being built and customers using it. And those are usually three categories and people, and, and yes, people feel, you know, satisfaction out of all three, but one is usually the primary driver. The people who do well in big companies I think as product managers, Mm -hmm. are more the ones who are are people-oriented where they're happy to build all this consensus um, and and really try to drive all the stakeholder um, buy-in, et cetera. you know that that part there's so much of that in bigger companies that unless that's a major part of what drives satisfaction for you it 's hard to thrive in that environment
0: <laughs> yep, the curse of writ tape and bureaucracy <laughs> okay. but I think no, yeah, it's also
1: part of what what you end up enjoying like some people find people as their passion for mm. me it's creating change like when I see the effect of what i 'm done uh, of of what i 'm doing right. But people is, you need to figure out how to work with people to be able to do that. So that's kind of the secondary thing for me. For some people, the people part is the primary. Those people do really well with large organizations.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, very, very interesting. <clears throat> and then now on the flip side, what what do you think would be the biggest challenge of working in a startup, small, you know?
1: Yeah, I think uh, for me as a CEO, The hardest part is being very introspective. I think, uh, you know, if you're uh, an entrepreneur or uh, in a smaller, well, okay, I guess two categories. One is if you're a CEO of a company, you have to be able to um, be introspective, but not let that get to you because you Mm -hmm. think so much uh, about, is this the right decision or not? And you really don't know. uh, And you feel responsible for so many people. So, Yeah, having that support group so that you can talk about, uh, you know, just not knowing, but having to make those decisions, um, I think was probably the hardest part for me um, in the startup world. I think as a product person in a startup, it's different. Uh, I think it's it, you have a lot of autonomy you just have to find the right startup to work in because in many startups the founder still sees themselves as the um as the product owner or the the product leader and so you may not have that autonomy and so that's often a challenge working with the founder in a startup
0: yeah um that was something that that i i, I was talking about with with another guest right how i think it was rich the first the first guest on the show about how you tran- transfer or transition the center of gravity for product from the founder to the first product hire. Um, and and the challenge of doing that because not all product uh, sorry, not all uh, founders can let go so easily despite what they say. And and this is not not to, you know, shit on them, so to speak, but it's just that it's difficult, right? Because it was your baby, you thought about everything and then now you're expected to like, you know, let it go. Um, yeah, okay. I, I think, yeah, I definitely agree there. And I would, I would dare say that a lot of people would agree with you, as well. Now, last, um, last question, just to, just around your background and who you are. You've done work um, in marketing as well, um, and also work in product management. And uh, in my my experience, marketing and product management is where you either get really good cohesion or you get lots of Um, fireworks. (laughs) It it could either be really bad or really good. Um, And how do you find or or rather, how would you say would be the best way for marketing and product teams to work together given that you've had experience with both?
1: That's really an interesting question. You know, I haven't had the opposite experience of marketing and product management uh, not working well together. Mm. Um, and I guess the yeah both at avid technology or even my own startup uh, you know my fa- my co-founder was someone who was amazing at marketing um, and so we, you know we worked so closely together that product management and marketing really had to uh, work closely uh, and, and in sync um, even when I was at avid and we were a much bigger company um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of when it, when that didn't happen. But I take your point. I completely agree that unless there is that cohesion, mm. um, you know, it, things don't work well together. So one of the things that I talk about as part of radical product thinking is when you're a product person, you should create a strategic cross-functional roadmap. Meaning that you know, very often we think about a roadmap just as engineering and at most engineering and design deliverables. So instead, it should contain other things that include how will the product get to your customer, which is marketing, um, and uh, initiatives that are about training, support, et cetera. And so that as you release your product, you're thinking about all of these things and how that roadmap evolves um, for those uh, other items. And this way, it helps bring those elements along with you um, and, and coordinated with you.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the stories that I've heard and in, even in one of my own experiences is that the, the tension or when it starts becoming difficult is when the, the campaigns or the strategies that are employed are very tactical, very for the now. And when they don't really have a sense for the the next or you know the longer term play, um, I think that's where it sometimes you know there there's a bit of friction. I won't say you know it's not it's not fireworks and you know taking guns and shooting each other. It's just that, yeah, it creates that friction.
1: Yeah, and I think you know one of the things, and and maybe you're referring to it as marketing, but one of the things that I've struggled with in companies is where the product person doesn't have any say in how the product is priced. Mm. Um, and and when that happens, right, then uh, again, it, it's exactly what you talked about, which is that uh, it may be a short-term way of thinking about the product. Um, and if we haven't thought about that pricing and how features align with that pricing, et cetera, uh, it makes it much harder in the longer term.
0: Hmm, yeah, that's a very interesting point of view about the pricing part. Okay, yeah. So for those of you who are having uh, you know, friction with your marketing teams, go figure out, is it related to the pricing and your long-term versus short-term gains that you're trying to play into? Very good. Um, sorry, I said it would be a last question, but I actually forgot one very important question. How did you end up in Singapore? Because you were you know living life the, the the great life in 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 Massachusetts and in the great u s you know land of opportunity, and suddenly you're now in this state that is a country that is smaller than most u s states so
1: um actually funny enough, Singapore is exactly the size of the greater Boston area <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just Boston right not not the whole of Massachusetts so.
1: well, you know, Boston feels like a little bubble that we live in so. <laughs>
0: That is true. That is bubble true. Bubble
1: there, bubble here. Um, so, how did we end up here? Uh, so, we lived in the US for so long, and you know, my own background is that I've lived in so many countries, uh, grew up in India, then lived in South Africa, then moved to the US. Um, my children had grown up in the US all along, and we really just wanted to give them the experience of seeing more of the world, being in Asia. Um, and so my husband works in the self-driving car, which is based both out of Boston and in Singapore. Um, and so we said, let's move to Singapore. we would never been there before. Um, and uh, we said, well, we're gonna move there for one year. So who cares that we haven't seen it? You know, it's gonna be an adventure for one year. Let's just move and then we'll figure it out. So we moved here. Um, and yeah, two years later, we're still here. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, and about a year into it is when I started working with the government here. Um, with the monetary authority?
0: yeah, yeah, that that's a very interesting one as well. Um, I probably won't go into that because we're all, uh, I, I want to go into the really interesting stuff, but yeah, maybe if we have time at the end we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how you ended up working with the monetary authority of Singapore uh, as well. Um so I wanted to jump into radical product thinking, uh, and that's been something that you've been uh, talking about um you know at, at PMF, um, at LTP um i don't know where else we've talked about it probably many other places but those are the two ones that i've seen and in fact i think i met you at pmf when you were talking about radical product thinking as well so how what is the genesis of radical product thinking yes how did that come about
1: yeah so Um, I had been, as you saw from my background, right, like I'd worked in so many different industries and sizes of companies. And I mentioned product diseases. So um, it was the same set of product diseases that were happening in large and small companies and regardless of industry verticals. Um, And so and the second thing, right, so what I mean by these product diseases is that it's easy to make mistakes in the process of translating an idea into reality. Um, And somewhere between, you know, having a vision, For your idea and executing on your idea, there comes a disconnect. And whenever there's this disconnect, is where you end up with these product diseases. So, what I saw was that, you know, there were some product people who just innately were just good at this, right? They just innately knew how to build good products. And other people, um, they, they weren't naturally good at it. And so it, it led me to this question of, is it that this is an innate skill where you just kind of have it or you don't? Or is this something that we can really teach people systematically? Um, and the last time this came about was because uh, I was building my own product team. Um, and just, you know, even I could, I there were some people I could hire out of, college and they just had this feeling for product management um and so that's what that was the genesis like can we um teach people systematically how to build good products Um, and it evolved from there Um, and so basically first um in terms of putting together radical product thinking it was um two other people that i'd been working with nadia Garwal and jordi Cadies, um and we crafted this whole Um, framework so that you know we could take people systematically from building you know how do you build a good vision Uh, what is a comprehensive product strategy and giving people just this very simple set of tools that makes it easy to do each step Mm -hmm. and then the evolution has now been that you know since we launched this in 2017 uh, it's now become this global movement where there are people around the world who are using this approach um, and it's become this movement where people feel like you know this is a good way of not just building products but also a way of thinking about responsibility and um, and how do we build good products that make the world better.
0: Very interesting, yeah, one of my questions I was going to ask you, which you've already answered was, yeah, is radical product thinking a framework? Is it a movement? Um, yeah, but it sounds like you're, you're just saying it, it sort of has naturally evolved from what started out as a you know, simple framework to becoming a community of people who use the, the framework
1: yeah exactly and really it's a methodology for building successful products so the way i describe it is you know you have lean startup as a methodology and it's become a movement Um, similarly you know what i find is lean startup helps you with iteration and building products fast Um, and radical product thinking helps you think about uh, what's the right vision for you? What's the strategy? It helps you provide all the direction. so lean startup gives you speed, radical product thinking gives you direction um, mm. and together, speed plus direction gives you velocity, and that's mm. how you
0: know,
1: yeah. the, the two go together
0: yeah because i yeah, I still remember when 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 I first heard it um and you' you're talking about how you know p- pivotitis I think was the disease you were talking about um, and and I was thinking like, yeah, but you know you were saying that you know lean was something that was sort of exacerbating the problem exacerbating the problem um and I, and i really had to think about that because i've been using lean as part of um how i do my role as a product manager as a product leader and to to have to rethink that was tough i'll, I'll admit and the thing i think and, and you know i would love to get your thoughts is that there is this the the, the pro- part of the problem is that a lot of people take what they think is great about a particular framework and completely disregard the rest so like for lean the easiest one is that look especially the lean startup you know so eric reese's book was you know phenomenal and what has come out as an after effect of that the, the not so good part is people think that it's all about just pivoting 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 and totally bypassing the fact that the whole idea was the build measure learn triangle and validated learning. You know, when people talked about agile, it was all about, hey, you know, how can we not be so bogged down by documentation and things like that. And the after effect of that was everybody jumped on the bandwagon and suddenly it's all about, hey, we don't need documentation. We're rock stars, you know, we're gonna build this shit and then we'll worry about it later. Um so I I like the way that you framed it that you know radical product thinking Helps you with the direction, and when you pair it together um, it's it's something that's going to help in that sense and so that brings me to my next question. How important is it for people in product or even in organization actually that they don't just look at one particular framework and look at that as you know the mecca or you know the silver bullet
1: yeah so important right because um, as you say i think lean was great agile was great um, and i use both of those um, the the point is just that sometimes we overuse iteration um, at a company recently one of the executives uh we told them like look we don't have the right design resource um and he says well you know that's just going to mean a few extra iterations but we'll get there <laughs> so the the thing is like iteration has become the solution to everything um and so this is the piece where um you know i think we have to look at frameworks and say well what part is good out of each framework Mm -hmm. and then combine them with others
0: okay and and coming back to to my question um how do you make sure um in your because obviously you are the the chief evangelist for radical product thinking right how do you make sure that the people who are adopting this framework don't take it as a silver bullet because it's very easy right for people to say this sounds great you know uh, radika like I, I want to take this and then you know two weeks later this is rubbish this doesn't work why because they they took it as the silver bullet
1: yeah you know whenever a methodology really takes off right that is going to happen um <laughs> so that's just one thing we uh, even when we started radical product thinking and crafted this framework we accepted that this is kind of part of what happens with frameworks um and so our approach to this was we've tried to make it very systematic and step by step where um you know we make it like the vision statement that we've um crafted it's a mad libs uh, like fill in blank statement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that. Uh, it's really easy for teams to fill it out, right? Um, but that said, how do you fill it out? How do you know you filled it out right? So we try to provide more support. But I've, I've even created templates that are filled out based on my startup saying, well, you know, Here, here's something where uh, it it shows you to what level of detail you want to fill these out. But despite all of these things, I think, you know, we just are um, as product leaders, we're in a rush, under pressure. um, And so we don't necessarily have access to all of this information. Uh, We look at sound bites and that's often what happens, um, you know, especially if something becomes popular, someone recommends it to something else, uh, to someone else. um, and, And yeah, you kind of get the sound bites out of it. So I kind of expect that it may, we, maybe years from now, you know, we'll hear, oh, radical product thinking, you know, it all went wrong. Here's what you need to do instead.
0: There you go. Yeah, okay. That, that's true. Uh, all right. Um, sorry, our listeners and viewers, there were some technical problems. Um, my Mac crashed. <laughs> so um, I've had to sort of restart this. So we're going to pull this back a little bit and, you know, go back with Redika to um, the question of the silver bullet. So, um, Redika, before uh, before our technical problem happened, I was asking you about the silver bullet disease where, you know, when a particular framework takes, well, you were saying it actually, when a particular framework takes off, um, the, the, the concern here is that people take it as the silver bullet, right? Like everything is, hey, it's supposed to be um, working for me and now... It didn't solve any of my problems.
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, with any methodology that becomes successful, um, that tends to happen. Like, I think, you know, even if we look at Lean Startup, uh, in one of the chapters, or even in the early chapters, Eric Ries talks about how you need a vision, and then here's what you do. But I think that part often gets overlooked, because, you know, one of the other things that, uh, that is often said about Lean Startup is, you know, you don't have to focus on your business plan so much anymore you focus on just doing and trying and then iterating Um, and so I think you know it's all about confirmation bias we hear what we want to hear and you know writing a good vision etc that takes a lot of um, just emotional and mental bandwidth to do that work. And so doing feels very satisfying. And so we all hear what we want to hear. And then the methodology and and we kind of adopt those elements. And so I think, um, you know, as any methodology becomes successful, We'll get what we want out of it. Uh, But I think the intent really that we've tried to convey through radical product thinking is that we really need uh, a good vision, meaning answering detailed questions that isn't traditionally done as part of um, writing a vision. You know, typically conventional wisdom about a vision is it has to be short, like a slogan, um, it is so that it's memorable. Uh, it has to be big and aspirational, like how you're going to change the world, um, and a, or very often it's called a BHAG, right? Which is a big, hairy, audacious goal. And so, basically, a, a vision is supposed to be heroic. We take it down to no. A vision should really be something that's the authentic change that you want to build, um, and what's that? Uh, and, and getting you to describe that in a lot of detail. Um, so. As part of the framework, we try to provide the uh, intent behind it, uh, that this direction comes from sharing and communicating a lot of this detail and your rationale. Um, And really, that's the intent of radical product thinking, uh, a toolkit for sharing, communicating, thinking through your direction that you can then use to um, get into lean and agile development.
0: Okay, Um, so let's talk about that toolkit a little bit. So by the way, for those of you who don't know, uh, the toolkit is available for free on radicalproduct.com. And I'm looking through that toolkit. And one of the things that you've brought up in your talks as well, is having that vision that you've just mentioned. Now the vision has this part that says, you know, um, today when this is the customer wants to, and it goes down, and there's a part that says, this is unacceptable because, and you're supposed to put in the shortcomings of the current solution, and then it goes on to say, we envision a world where shortcomings are resolved. And I guess the question for for you here is that um, I asked it uh, the question slightly different the first time around, so maybe I'll, I'll ask it slightly differently as well. How do we make sure that we are being holistic in the approach where you know shortcomings are resolved, but not sacrificing? the speed uh, or yeah, mainly about the speed, I think, because especially, so I'm going to ask this question from a startup perspective. Speed is always what you need because you're struggling to find product market fit. Your funding may be running out, your runway is short. And, you know, not everyone might say, Hey, I don't want to envision a world where all the shortcomings are resolved.
1: Yeah, and def- definitely. We definitely don't even want people to think that they should be resolving all the shortcomings. So, the idea with the vision statement is that it makes you answer four questions. So, whose world are you trying to change? Um, and so, it's, it gets very specific in terms of um, defining that who. Um, so, it's as detailed as saying, you know, uh, it's not like people everywhere. Um, to give you an example of my startup, we said, you know, we wanted to target amateur wine drinkers. And so, we got very specific. What does it mean? to say amateur wine drinkers and we described uh, wine drinkers on a scale of 1 to 10 where 1 is I know nothing about wine and 10 is I'm a winemaker I know all there is to know uh, and we were targeting people who are from a level 2 to a 6 because we found that above a 6 people were very snobbish about wine um, and so this is the level of detail we need to be able to craft a good vision in terms of whose world are you trying to change it's not everyone it's a very specific set then what's their problem then we we can say okay what's the why is that unacceptable because you know just um, our thinking that it's unacceptable may not be enough, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. This vision has to deeply resonate with the people whose world you're trying to change. Um, They should also find something unacceptable. It has to be a problem we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then lastly, we're saying, how will we solve that problem? And it's specifically not solving all shortcomings, but, um, but how are we solving that particular problem that we're describing? And your point about you know not trying to solve everything, um, we take that into strategy as well. So when you build a strategy, it's about listing all the pain points, but then very uh, diligently prioritizing those pain points so so that you don't encounter the disease I call strategic swelling, where we're trying to do everything for everyone, right? And we get very specific about what we can solve mm-hmm. as a startup and quickly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I like the, the the fact that so again. Um, you know, not trying to solve the problem for everyone. Don't try to ball the ocean. You know, you know, distill it down to really who you want to solve the problem for and then envision the world for them. Yeah, really nice. Now, um, I have to congratulate you first. You got, your book is coming out, right? You were saying?
1: Yes. Um, so it comes out in September next year with Barrett Kohler.
0: Okay, very nice. So that book is coming out. Um, so I wanted to find out from you what's different in the book or rather yeah what's different about the book and also the the frame the toolkit that's on the site um what's what's additional in the book that we should be looking forward to
1: yeah, so in the book I describe a lot more in terms of case studies, examples, how you can use it. What what happened was we released this toolkit, and then very often people would reach out to us saying, "Well, actually, so how do I how do I use this? Do, do you have a voiceover that goes with this toolkit?" Uh, and so I started doing talks, um, and then there were more questions like, "Well, you know, don't you have some more explanations, case studies, etc.?" Um, and so our toolkit, as you see, lots has lots of text as well to try to explain these things to people. But we really realized that um, I think the book really is needed to be able to give people the complete guide to how do you use this toolkit. Um, And really, it's a way of thinking. You know, going back to what you said about startups, for startups, it's all about speed. This isn't necessarily, uh, this isn't at all designed to be able to add more process. It's really not about adding process. It's Mm. more about adding just a way of thinking. Um, It's stuff that becomes intuitive. Um, over time, as you start to use it, and then people start to think in this way.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. I like that. Um, so I, I, that's one part that you mentioned at the end of your answer, which was you know you you, you work with with uh, organizations, companies, products, and they say you know do you have this? Do you have that? Um, do you have a story that you can tell us about how radical product thinking or applying your frame, the, this framework, has helped? Uh, the company. I think this is always the part you know the the nice stories that people want to hear as well, right?
1: Um, I think it was uh, the first conference that I talked at. Um, it was um, O'Reilly's AI conference, um, and so I had finished my talk. And, you know, there were people who came over afterwards. And it felt, and, you know, this was right after we had launched this toolkit. So it felt a little bit like celebrity status when someone came over to us to tell us, you know, I didn't realize that you guys are the people behind radical product thinking. <laughs> I I found this toolkit, I started using it, and she started telling us how they were using it. This is a company called Daytank, uh, based out of Mexico. Um, they are a services company, and here we are building a product toolkit, right? And so these guys, they really took this idea of the product toolkit being, you know, something that you can apply to any kind of a product. including you know, productizing a service that you have. Um, And so they were really, uh, not only were they using this um, for themselves because they were building some internal uh, products, they were also starting to use this with their clients so that they could help the clients really define their vision for Mm. what they were asking them to build, define a strategy, um, and it helped build a lot more clarity for them uh, between their clients. And so, what was interesting was even beyond like using it, they liked it so much that um, the, the key product manager who had found this, she was talking at another conference in Mexico uh, where she talked to uh, people saying, "Oh, use this toolkit. Here's what we're doing with it." <laughs> and this was all, you know, even before we knew anything about how people were starting to use product thinking. Um, so. I guess my message to your uh, listeners is: um, I love these stories, so please, you know, uh, if you, um, yeah. you know, if you'd like to share stories about how you're using this, um, send me an email. Um, I, it's always just heartwarming, you know, to see kind of how this toolkit is helping people.
0: Moving on, uh, I wanted to ask you about radical product thinking, you know, and it deals with the the vision side of things and the strategy on how to achieve. That vision, um, and how does that differ, um, or or maybe even how how is it similar to, uh, let's say, a framework such as OKRs, because you have these objectives and key results, and um, yeah, I just wanted to to understand from you where you see the similarities or differences.
1: Yeah, um, so. Maybe first, I should. So, we talked about what is a good vision in the radical product thinking way. Uh, I'll talk about what is a good strategy. So, strategy basically answers four questions. The first question is um, what triggers someone to use your product? Like, what's the pain that they're experiencing? Um, then, the second is, you know, what's the design, meaning, like, what's the solution to that pain? Uh, the third is capabilities, meaning, you know, so you've defined the solution, but what powers that solution? So maybe it's technology, it's um, something that's intangible, and then the last thing is the logistics, meaning how does the solution get to the customers? Um, and that's basically where you think about your pricing, your training, support, etc. And so answering these four questions, right? If you look at the business model canvas. Um, when I first started using the business model canvas, I think it's useful, but like I didn't find it actionable. Like I didn't know what was the purpose. Like how do all of these elements connect? Mm. Um, and so we tried to help people through answering these questions um, by connecting the dots. So it's really pain points connected to a solution, connected to capabilities, and then a pricing model, training model, etc. cetera. Um, and so that was the idea that, um, you know, th- so this is basically some of the same information that's contained, but we created this in a way that makes it easier for you to share your rationale with the team. Because what would happen with a business model canvas is people would often, le- often do it just by themselves. But the whole point is that, you know, to bring other people on the journey with you, that Where uh, you needed to really simplify that thinking and convert it into something that's explainable in terms of rationale. So that's the the strategy. And your question about OKRs, right? um, I talk about that as part of measurement um, in the toolkit. Mm -hmm. Um, So OKRs to me, they're great, uh, but if you look at, you know, some of the recent um, articles written by, you know, um, Google and uh, the uh, ex-head of product at Google, you know, so he talks about how um, OKRs are... Basically intended to provide the narrative in terms of where are we going? What's the human impact we're trying to create? Right. Mm-hmm. It's not intended just as a matter of measuring. Definitely not measuring people. Uh, and even in terms of measuring teams, it's not necessarily uh, like if you set something ambitious enough, um, then you only hit like seventy percent, and that's considered good. But that yeah. can also be motivating, right? So. It it really depends on kind of how you're using OKRs. And um, I've seen it used well and not very well, um, Mm -hmm. too. Um, And so my view in the end is that OKRs are great in terms of providing a narrative um, and where we're going. um, But. You know, execution, I think about it differently in terms of how can you tell if your product is doing well. Um, And that comes from a set of hypotheses that should be derived from your strategy and your vision. So that's what we help people do through the toolkit. Um, The thing with OKRs and again, you know, this is not to critique OKRs. I've seen them used well. Um, I think with OKRs, very often the one thing that goes wrong is they're set from above. And so for product teams, they look like arbitrary metrics where it's like, oh, we have to hit these numbers, right? And, um, and when it's arbitrary, people don't really buy into it. That's not really highly uh, motivating. It's more mm-hmm. that you have to hit these numbers to be able to get your bonus. Um, but that's not necessarily what's driving product um, excellence. Um, And so a a different way of thinking about it is thinking about your metrics in terms of how does it align with your strategy and prove out whether your strategy is on the right track or not. And how does it align with your vision to know whether you're creating the change that you envisioned?
0: Right. Yeah. So the reason I was asking about, you know, OKRs and and the the Radical Product Thinking Toolkit or the Vision Statement more specifically is because. OKRs are supposed to have an overarching, like you said, the narrative of what is the main objective, and then it boils down. But there's also this cascading effect where you know it starts off something as something really vague, and then as it goes down the the chain of command, it becomes more granular, and that's where your um, what you're talking about the metrics comes in. And I've also seen um, where they also do it from the top up, where they sort of you know top meets bottom. And you sort of get this OKRs, which are basically actionable by both the top and the bottom. So trying to understand um, the yeah, from that approach, is that kind of similar to what the radical product thinking vision statement and the strategy piece is trying to achieve or it's not not the same? Or is it just really on the um, measuring part, as you were saying? Sorry.
1: Yeah, so OKRs are typically done on the measurement part. Um, So the vision and strategy, regardless of how you're measuring, you still need a vision and a strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that uh, radical product thinking helps you do. And then, you know, OKRs, they're often uh, a summary of what you're measuring. You need, you know, but as a product leader, you're measuring so many different things. Like, how do you decide what you're going to measure? Um, That's part of, you know, what we talk about uh, in the execution portion of the
0: toolkit. Right, right. Okay. Um, that's really, really great. Um, and I think it has really helped me understand a lot more about the radical product thinking. I'm definitely going to be looking forward to to the book as well. Um, yeah, because I've read the toolkit, you know, listened to the talks, and I think there's going to be a lot more stuff in the book that's going to make it even more interesting. So you're saying September of next year, right, using?
1: Exactly, September 2021.
0: Okay, fantastic. And hopefully by then, you know, we'll all be back to our happy places where we can travel again. Um, yeah, so, fingers, <laughs> crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed, definitely. Um, yeah, so, so, so many more questions I want to ask, um, but maybe we'll, we'll save that for next time. Um, I wanted to jump into the last part of the show, which is the song. And uh, you chose a very interesting song. So why don't you tell the listeners about which song you chose?
1: Oh, okay. I picked, um, uh, it's by Eurythmics. Uh, it's called sweet dreams are made of this. Uh, but I love this song because it's uh 1990s Euro dance sort of music. Um, it's, what can I say? My weakness.
0: <laughs> so you, sorry, are you there? Hello? Henry. Yeah. I'm here. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So for you, um, are you into the whole nineties, uh, are you into the Eurobeat uh, or are you into, yeah, or just any Lenox more like?
1: <laughs> no, it's it's really the Eurodance. So, yeah, I love listening to Eurodance if I'm running or, um, yeah, This Sweet Dreams Are Made of This is, you know, the track I use when people intro me um, for any talk I'm giving. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love this music. It just reminds me of you know um, the the school days. Oh, when I'd just gotten into MIT, that must be the link.
0: <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Um, I love Annie Lennox. I think she her voice is so different. Um, so I, I'm a child of the '80s as well. So. Yeah, growing up listening to Eurythmics and then Annie Lennox, um, yeah, that was really, really good. So when you chose Sweet Dreams, I mean, it is very nice. Um, I have to say my my personal preference is um, I like Marilyn Manson's version of that, but that's a totally different genre altogether. So.
1: Oh, i have to go listen to that. I don't think I've heard it.
0: <laughs> oh, it's, uh, uh, yeah. Go go listen to it. Three Dreams of Middle East by Marilyn Manson. So that's yeah, very very different. Um, but okay, um, so thank you so much for for being on the show, uh, Radika. And apologies for you know the technical hiccups that we've had. Um, did you have any you know final thoughts that you wanted to leave with our listeners and our viewers?
1: Um, Thank you for having me on the show. This was so much fun to talk to you. Um, I guess in terms of um, parting words, um, I guess one thought I have is, you know, very often um, this this whole idea that we have to create a vision, a strategy, etc., you know, it feels like Um, you know, do we really need so much of this direction? Can't we just jump into uh, execution? Like very often I hear from startups saying, well, you know, like the whole point of iterating is that you don't know your vision. Can't you just start off and then discover what your vision is along the way? Um, And to which I always say, you know, It's always good to have a starting point, a stake in the ground Mm -hmm. where you say, this is my vision. And the idea with this vision written in a fill in the blanks format is that you should be able to change it. That's the most important thing I can say about a vision, that we often look at a vision as something that, you know, once you've written it, that's set in stone. Uh, It's like the 10 commandments that are just put (laughs) up somewhere, right? And instead it should be looked at as something that we periodically go back and revisit and say, you know, is this still true? Um, And so as as a very young startup, you may start off with a vision Uh, then you go into actually trying it out, executing on it, iterating on it. You may come back a few months later and say, you know what, we need to edit that vision and that's okay. But the good thing is that when you actually do that, you're bringing your team along with you on the journey. So you talked about pivotitis early on. The way to avoid pivotitis is, if you need to pivot, do, but at least you don't do it just kind of on the fly all the time. Uh, it's it's a grave big change where you have a vision, you're going to change it, you're communicating this change to the whole team, and it carries more gravitas with it. And therefore, it like gives you that um, steady direction, and you will change if needed, but not kind of just on the fly and because, oh, you know, today this looks better
0: all right thank you so much for that and and i totally 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 agree with what uh, radhika was saying uh that if you know you don't have a vision you can iterate all you want and it's not really going to take you anywhere because you don't know where you're going right it's like taking a journey to to nowhere <laughs> you don't know what's the destination um so yeah really really interesting talk with uh, with radhika am i saying it right i keep thinking like that perfect I'm yeah. it right. radhika Radhika. Um, so Radhika, I wish you all the best and I will be looking forward to your book. I really want to know a lot more and how this has been working with, you know, the different companies um, as well. And to everyone on the show who's listening or watching, once again, thank you so much for listening and watching all the way until here. And once again, I apologize for the technical mess up. And as usual, I will catch you on the next episode. Take care and bye-bye.